Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Great America podcast with Lou Dobbs, always in the fight for truth, justice, and yes, our American way of life. And now, here he is, the Peabody award-winning voice of truth, the great Lou Dobbs. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Great America Show, where truth and justice live, and the American way is the only way. Doc God, it's good of you to be with us today, especially so because we're going to spend some time with the best investigative journalist in the country. No, make, make that the best in the world. I'm talking, of course, about best-selling author, great American, and friend, Peter Schweitzer. Peter is a fearless investigator. He goes where other journalists and authors fear to go. He takes on the money, the politically powerful and corrupt, and exposes them for what they are to all who want and need to know. Peter has written such bestsellers as Clinton Cash, Throw Them All Out, The Bushes, Secret Empires, Profiles in Corruption, Extortion, and now the blockbuster bestseller, red-handed how american elites get rich helping china win peter it is great to have you with us here congratulations on your new book and another big bestseller oh thank you very much lou it's always great to sit down with you uh we started doing this back when you were at cnn and i i always enjoy our conversations so i'm, I'm just delighted to be here with you thanks so much for having me you bet uh and uh you know you, you've done it again at a time when this country needs to know more about what the corporate-owned left-wing media will not tell them, uh, here comes Peter Schweitzer with more revelations uh, and far more uh, contributions to the public's need to know, right to know. Uh, I want to start with, uh, you know, one of your early chapters, the Bidens, and yeah. and to see the amount of money that they have wrangled. Uh, Tell us about this relationship with the Chinese and how it's even bigger, I think, than even the most cynical uh, uh, Americans might have thought of the Biden family. Absolutely, uh, Lou. You know, I, I first broke the story of the fact that the Biden family had commercial ties with China back in 2018. And I came on your show and we talked about it. And, uh, Uh, You know, at that time, it was simply a story of uh, corruption and cronyism, self-dealing, you know, that that obviously China was trying to influence uh, the Bidens in some way. Maybe it was, you know, tantamount to some kind of a bribe. Uh, What we did with the new material that's come uh, along, and by that I mean the Hunter Biden laptop, uh, I mean emails from uh, some of Hunter Biden's uh, business partners who shared their email accounts with us. Um, what, what turns out is it's something more troubling than that. Um, what we found is that the amount of money they got is some $31 million. Um, but what's troubling is who made those deals happen? Using the new sources of information, we traced it back. And what we found is that every one 
of the businessmen that helped that money flow to the Bidens uh, is linked to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence. So, you know, this is not just a story anymore of cronyism and corruption. Uh, it's a story about uh, potential compromise uh, and the fact that the first family of the United States, um, you know, has a very real China spy problem. And that spy problem uh, is longstanding, uh, going back to the vice president, uh, to the president's vice day, uh, vice president days <laughs> with the Obama administration. Uh, and the word vice and vice president, he gives uh, all the more meaning to. <laughs> it, it, it's disgusting to think what this man has been doing, uh, his brother, uh, Hunter their connections and their corruption. It's its there for all to uh, recognize, uh, to accept for those who are at least willing uh, to take a look at the evidence that you've presented. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, what's interesting is you find that, you know, some of the mainstream reporters will, will say that, you know, okay, this is a Hunter Biden story and, you know, Hunter's got all these personal problems. Uh, the fact of the matter is, I think when you look at the evidence, the evidence I present in the book, uh, you, you find out this is not a Hunter Biden problem. This is a Biden family problem uh, because there's a couple of things going on here. I mean, one of the things you find in the emails is that the expectation by family members, including Joe Biden, that Hunter is going to collect money on their behalf. Uh, there's a uh, a message where Hunter Biden is uh, texting with his daughter, uh, where he says, you know, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to give me half your money like Pop asks me to do. Mm -hmm. um, now, you can look at that and say, OK, well, maybe Hunter's just having a bad day and it's hyperbole. The problem is, Lou, when you start going through uh, the emails, the financial records, you see that Hunter Biden is paying a lot of Joe Biden's expenses while he's vice president of the United States. And not only is that illegal, uh, but it, it's money that's coming from these very sketchy, troubling foreign sources. And Joe Biden is a beneficiary of it. So this is not a Hunter Biden story. It's not a Hunter Biden problem. It's a Biden family problem. And to a certain extent, I came away a little bit more sympathetic in all, in all words uh, for Hunter Biden because um, he's under pressure. He's expected to do this by the family. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why he's willing to throw in with some of these people because of the pressure pressures from the family. Yeah, he, you portray him as uh, and you don't say this, but he comes across in your reporting as a bag man for the entire corrupt family uh, working between the the Chinese and worse, not just the Chinese, the Chinese government the Chinese intelligence agencies, and indeed the uppermost reaches of the communist Chinese intelligence agencies. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, you look at how the deals happened, that 31 million, some $31 million, uh, 20 million of that comes from this private equity deal. He gets an ownership stake in this financial fund. Um, where he's put on the board. Of course, he has no experience or background in, in finance in that way. Um, but we decided to look, well, who made that deal happen? Uh, who actually opened that door for Hunter? And we discovered it's a guy named Che Fang, who's this uh, very sort of mysterious businessman. Turns out that at the time, he's hooking Hunter up 
His business partner is the vice minister at the Ministry of State Security, which is China's spy agency. And his business partner, whose name is Ma Jian, his responsibilities include recruiting foreign nationals to spy for China. And he also has responsibility for North American intelligence operations. This is the guy uh, that, that Hunter Biden's business partner is business partners with. Um, and what happens is that you know other deals are procured, but many of the deals that that uh, that Hunter's involved in China involve these entities that that are doing deals around the world to help China's strategic position. And Hunter Biden is part of those efforts. Part of those efforts, and the bank accounts bulge as a result uh, of those efforts. The Chinese have have a long-standing relationship. Now, what may surprise some people is you also reveal what has been going on with the Bush family uh, in, in, in sequence. First, the Bushes, which became, it seems to me, uh, something of a template for the way in which they worked with the Biden family. Uh, am, I, am I right about that? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right, Lou. Um, uh, the Chinese uh, government likes arrangements with families. So I think part of that's just cultural because of the way that China works. Uh, the Chinese family um, uh, and dynastic uh, uh, elements in political power in China are the way they operate. They, they see the same thing in the United States. So yes, uh, really for the uh, Bush family, uh, really beginning in the 1980s when George H.W. Bush is vice president, uh, his brother Prescott starts landing really nice deals in China, courtesy of the Chinese government. Uh, those deals continue in the 1990s when George W. Bush becomes president in 2001. Prescott Bush gets a new round of deals, but George W. Bush's brother Neil uh, starts lining up deals. So, for example, he uh, becomes a consultant to a Chinese computer company that is owned by the son of China's premier. Um, and, and, you know, today, if you look at Neil Bush, uh, he is connected with all these Chinese companies. He has something called the Bush Center for U.S.-China Relations, which is funded by this uh, influence, Chinese influence peddling uh, organization called the United Front Organization. Um, and he goes on China TV and talks about how great the regime is, about uh, you know, the human rights record is misunderstood in the West. So they like these kinds of dynastic relationships. Uh, they had one with elements of the Bush family, and they have it certainly uh, with the Biden family as well. I love the name of the organization, the United Front Organization. And, and for those who don't know, that's how uh, our, our federal agencies refer to uh, organizations, corporations that are in this country. Uh, from China, front companies, uh, which are used by the Chinese intelligence uh, to pick up uh, technology, uh, intellectual property, whatever they can, and get it back to the uh, uh, mother country. 3,500 so-called front companies uh, in this country uh, 20 years ago. Lord knows how many there are today. Uh, it, it's it's uh, at least you have to say they have a sense of humor about the the names they choose. Let's go to the role of big tech here too, because I think that's something that people really don't appreciate is the degree of uh, both proximity and cooperation 
and shared interests to the point of alignment between big tech, social media, and the Communist Chinese Party, that is to say, China's government. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and uh, I have a story in the book that I think illustrates uh, that. Um, the chief propagandist for the Chinese Communist Party uh, goes to Silicon Valley uh, for a visit. Um, and he stops and visits uh, the, the headquarters of Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg gives him a tour around uh, the entire facility. And then they go to Mark Zuckerberg's office where the chief propagandist sits down. He's looking at the desk and he notices a 500 page book sitting on the corner of Mark Zuckerberg's desk. And it looks familiar to him because he helped put it together. It's the collected writings and works of President Xi, China's president, and of course, head of their Communist Party. So the propagandist asks Mark Zuckerberg, oh, you have this book, what's this book doing here? And Mark Zuckerberg tells him, well, I'm reading that book and I bought copies for the senior management at Facebook because I want them also to understand socialism with Chinese characteristics. Now, I don't, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg's a socialist, but I think he likes, and a lot of these tech executives like, the kind of top-down Leninist dictatorship that China has. They see it as efficient, they see it as quick, they don't see it as messy like our representative government, um, and they are very attracted to this Chinese model of governance. There is, I think, Peter, a, a tremendously powerful strain of authoritarianism that is now running through corporate America. When, when I read uh, the anecdote that you, you mentioned, uh, I, I, to me, there's a, there's a chilling aspect to that. Uh, the sentence uh, that uh, socialism tinged with uh, Chinese characteristics, it was an embrace of a communist country to me and when you put that together with Zuckerberg's insistence on spending hundreds of millions of dollars, at least that we know of, in the 2020 election to fund drop boxes and all sorts of uh, actions that were taken to benefit Joe Biden uh, in, in the race for the presidency, it, it really does put things in some sharp relief. Yeah, I think it does. Uh, and look, um, when you look at people uh, in big tech, um, a lot of them say very nice things uh, about China. Uh, Bill Gates, uh, you know, the founder of Microsoft, one of the richest men in the world. I mean, I quote him extensively in the book, uh, praising the Xi regime. Yeah. He says, you know, President Xi works so hard for the Chinese people. Well, of course, he works very hard repressing uh, the Chinese people. Um, but Gates also is an advisor uh, to the Chinese government. I mean, they appoint him to something called the uh, Chinese Academy of Engineering, which, you know, sounds so great and techy and so scientific until you realize it's, it's run by the Chinese Communist Party. You can see it right on their website. Um, and their stated goal and objective is to enhance uh, the technological prowess of the Chinese state. So what prompts a guy like Bill Gates worth more than $100 billion who you know, has, has uh, borne the fruit of this great free market system we have, what prompts him to become a quasi-advisor of sorts to President Xi? What prompts him to invest in Chinese companies that are military, building military technologies, challenging the United States? 
What prompts him uh, to uh, uh, you know, get involved in all kinds of efforts that benefit China? You have to wonder what's motivating it. I don't think it's money. I think it's something more than that. And I think you're right. Uh, and I, and if we look at this in, in terms of the Russian collusion hoaxes that Hillary Clinton perpetrated uh, with the help of the DNC, uh, with the help of, uh, frankly, the FBI and the Department of Justice, uh, it's, it, it is appalling to think that all that President Trump went through with those fake claims and false stories and uh, fraudulent dossiers that led to a special counsel investigation and compare that to the relationship between Zuckerberg, uh, uh, Bill Gates, uh, the list goes on in, in, in Wall Street, Steve Schwartzman. Uh, that's, that's collusion by any other name. Uh, is it uh, treasonous? No, but it is collusion, and it bears investigation. And if you're not investigating it, uh, who would? Because it's not going to be the corporate media that has huge investments in China and which is critically, uh, importantly uh, aligned with uh, China, far more than they are with, with, frankly, the leaders of either party in this country. Yeah, I mean, Lou, I think you make a really important point there, uh, which is, you know, that these uh, titans, they know what they're doing. Uh, they're, they're not naive. It is a collusion. Um, you know, one of the stories I recount in the book is that Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and the, the guys at Google uh, in 2016 uh, decide they're going to they're going to build this massive cable and they're going to link Hong Kong with San Francisco with this undersea cable. And they hire a Chinese company to do it that happens to also be uh, tied to the Chinese state and the Chinese military. Uh, and they're off to the races. And it's only because the Trump administration, uh, the Department of Justice and the FBI say, wait a minute, you can't do this. This is going to create, in their words, an unprecedented opportunity for the Chinese to spy on Americans. They stop and halt the project, meaning the federal government does. Right. now. Honestly, Lou, do we really want to believe that the guys at Facebook and Google weren't aware that that was going to happen? They're more tech savvy than anybody at the FBI, anybody in the Department of Justice. They knew precisely what the implications of building that cable would be. I just think they don't care. I think they don't care the consequences of what they do. And for all their kind of wokeness uh, in the United States, they are absolutely not awake and not focused and don't want to focus on the very real threat that China represents to ordinary Americans. Yes. And, and, and the question comes up, was Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Bill Gates, uh, whichever one of the, uh, the elites, the globalist elites, one worlders in Silicon Valley and big tech, uh, which of them were, were working to elect Biden at the behest of communist China? We don't know how far and how specific those motivations go, uh, but they're plausible and there's certainly uh, evidence of significant collusion and a real disconnect between the elites, the establishment of this country, and uh, a disconnect between its, their, the government of this country uh, and an embrace of the Chinese uh, way, if you will. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's no question. And, and Beijing knows this, by the way. Um, I cite in the book a speech uh, by a uh, Chinese uh, academic before uh, several hundred um, government officials uh, in China, where he lays out the fact, he talks, of course, about the fact, and they have a good chuckle uh, over the fact that they've kind of set the Bidens up for business in China. But he also says in that speech that you know, they don't really need to worry about, you know, trying to lobby Washington because uh, Wall Street and Silicon Valley will lobby for them. Um, and this is part of the problem. Uh, part of the problem is anytime uh, you have somebody, as President Trump tried to do and was successful in, in many respects, to sort of put a brakes on our embrace of China with tariffs, with uh, cracking down on technology transfer, um, you don't have to worry about China protesting. They don't need to because Wall Street and Silicon Valley will immediately have their lobbyists stop, start pressing uh, to undermine those actions in Washington and say, this is a terrible idea. We, won't, we don't want this done. Uh, that's an enormous problem. And I think uh, seeing and understanding that is crucial to knowing uh, the battle that we face with China today because you've got all these enablers in the most powerful offices in New York and, and Silicon Valley. You know, you talk about, you called them enablers uh, in, in the book. Uh, you you lay this out so clearly. Uh, and again, it is a terrific book. And I, I haven't even said this. I, if it's not obvious to everyone listening, I heartily, highly recommend Peter's new book, Red Handed. Uh, you've got to buy it because it is the, it is the, the foundation of everything that is going on amongst the globalist elites, this country, and the and it lays out so clearly the challenges this country faces, uh, particularly with China. But uh, but it goes beyond that. It's a corrupt elitist structure in this country. Uh, Peter calls them enablers, and I, I I call them snakes. I just they are <laughs> they are terrible people uh, because they know that they've rationalized. Uh, immoral and unethical, if not illegal activities that uh, harm this country and help those who mean us great harm. Uh, so again, we recommend the book uh, highly. Now I'd like to, I'd like to turn to uh, some of those enablers. Uh, Ray Dalio just recently, by the way, telling everybody, uh, he was quoted as saying that the United States is in decline and gave a, a big rousing cheer for China. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, Ray Dalio uh, really uh, is, is, I think, um, one of the most nefarious people on Wall Street, because not only of what he does, but what he says and the lengths to which he's prepared to go uh, to get deals in China, to get access to the Chinese market. One of the things I do uh, in the book, Lou, is I quote from a book that he ironically uh, named Principles. Uh, that he wrote uh, back in 2017. And if you read that book, he has a good page and a half on uh, a Chinese official named Wang Qishan. Uh, and, and in that page and a half, he talks about how this man has been a remarkable force for good in, in the, on the world stage uh, for more than a decade. He describes his long conversations with Wang Qishan as this sort of quasi-religious experience because he's learned so much from this man. So I thought, well, you know, who is this guy, this guy that Ray Dalio likes so much? And, you know, I, I poked around. It didn't take long. It turns out this guy is President Xi's enforcer. 
Uh, this is the guy who throws political opponents in jail. The Economist magazine called Wanky Sean this remarkable force for good, as Ray Dalio calls it. Right. They call him the most feared man in China. Now, what prompts a, a, a hedge fund guy, one of the richest Americans, to say something like that? Uh, I think part of it is he wants access to the Chinese market. And about a year after he wrote that book and said those words, uh, his firm become one of the, became the first hedge fund to be able to sell products to ordinary Chinese on the Chinese mainland. But I think beyond that, Ray Dalio has this um, uh, embrace for authoritarianism. I mean, in other instances, he talks about how efficient the Chinese system is, how messy our system is. He's described the oppressive, brutal nature of the regime as kind of a, a paternal parent who's just kind of trying to guide their kids along. It's really, really sinister stuff. And it's remarkable to me because when he goes on CNBC and these other networks, he's never asked about this. He's never asked about this at all. It's remarkable to me. It is remarkable. And again, we have to look uh, with, with some clarity at what is CNBC? What is uh, ABC yes. News? We're talking about mammoth corporate entities, whether it is Disney uh, it, that owns ABC News, whether it is AT&T, for crying out loud, that owns DirecTV and CNN, and by the way, which didn't even hesitate to crush uh, OAN and, and dismiss it from its DirecTV service because it's a competitor uh, of right. CNN. I, I mean, they're not even subtle any longer. Uh, Washington Post run by Jeff Bezos, uh, who is no, uh, <laughs> who is an enabler of China if ever there were one. Look at what an export market for China Amazon is. My Lord, it goes on and on and on. And our concentration of political and economic power in corporate media in this country, you were talking about effectively a half dozen, uh, you can extend it to perhaps eight that control 90% of the media in this country. You're right. And all of them, all of them are falling over themselves to get business deals in China. So Disney, like you said, that owns ABC News, uh, they have huge ambitions for their film projects, uh, for more theme parks. Uh, if you're talking about, um, you know, uh, companies like Comcast or others, they all want to enter the Chinese market. And this is the problem. To enter the Chinese market, it comes with a price. Um, I have a big section in the book on Elon Musk. I like a lot of the things that Elon Musk says. Uh, the problem is, once he went into business with Beijing, you know, they built him a factory, they staffed it with senior managers, Tesla's turning out cars there. Uh, he's become decidedly pro-Beijing. Um, he went on a podcast uh, not too long ago and talked about the fact that he believed that the Chinese government was more responsive to the needs of the Chinese people than the representative democracy that the United States has is to the people in the United States. Right. Uh, he, you know, he's, he's a praise to the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you know, it, it's, it's very sad and troubling while, why these very rich people uh, feel the need uh, to kowtow to dictators for the purpose of getting more money. Yeah, in, in Elon Musk uh, instance, his he just uh, Tesla's earnings just re revealed how dependent Tesla is on China. 
for its revenue and for its earnings and uh, its future market. There's no question about it. The same is true of Apple and Tim Cook doing a, uh, what is it, $275 billion deal with China uh, to assure uh, considered access uh, and continued access uh, to the to that in, insanely huge uh, market uh, for uh, for years and years to come, and it's paid off in their earnings as well. Just this week, uh, being released, uh, uh, record earnings, record profits. It's a it's again a, a very very just pragmatic story of corporate interest. The future for them uh, is fundamentally uh, rooted in China now. That's exactly right. They see the future. They see that it's there. Um, you know, these corporate executives uh, talk uh, about how concerned they are about social injustice in the United States. Uh, certainly, you know, during the apartheid years, they never would have done business in South Africa because, of course, the South African market was so tiny. China is this large market, um, and they have decided, in effect, to make a deal with the devil. And the problem is, it's not just access to the market. Um, Elon Musk's uh, uh, deal with Tesla in China is a case in point. Uh, the problem is, is that once you set up shop in China, uh, they start demanding other things. So there's a factory there, but he has agreed that he's going to start shifting the design work that's done for Tesla out of California into China. Uh, there are probably going to be, no doubt, demands, if they have not already been made uh, by Beijing, to get access to the software that Tesla uses um, for some of its guidance on the car. And you might think, okay, well, that's just related to the car. The problem is that Tesla uses similar code on its guidance uh, that it is also used by another of Elon Musk's companies, uh, which is SpaceX which launches US military satellites and spy satellites uh, into the sky. And there's a very real concern that he's gonna be forced to turn that over and it's gonna allow China to tap into all kinds of secrets about the launching of our military satellites. Um, the, the bottom line is they don't just give you access to their market and leave you alone and say just nice things about us. They demand more and more and more and more. Microsoft only got access to the market in the early 2000s because Bill Gates agreed that he was going to ship thousands of jobs, computer programming jobs, out of Washington state to China. Um, and the demands just keep coming and coming and coming. And these corporate titans never want to say no. They never want to say no. In some cases, they get in so deep that they can't uh, because... Uh, it's just when we look at what Microsoft has done, Google has done, Apple has done, without exception, these major companies, big tech, have uh, sold out to China in one form or another. And the Chinese actually have a law, as you're aware, but the audience needs to know this. Uh, they have a right to all intellectual property for every entity operating in China, every foreign entity. That means when, when Peter raises the issue of SpaceX as one of Elon Musk's uh, companies, think about what SpaceX is. It is the only U.S. launch, launch system available in this country to get our astronauts to the space station. It is the only one. Uh, 
unless we want to buy a, a seat uh, or a storage uh, capacity uh, on a Russian uh, rocket. But that's where we are. We could very well end up with the Chinese owning the launch facilities uh, for this that were this country's uh, because of SpaceX and the Russians. And the United States will be sitting there. Uh, NASA could be sucking its thumb because of the short-sightedness uh, that uh, the government brings to all of these issues. I, you know, Peter, I, your thoughts about higher education. We, we saw the FBI backing away from, for example, the chairman of the chemistry department at Harvard who had not disclosed his relationships with, with China. We know that's going on in university after university, and there is this sudden reversal of interest in uh, investigating and prosecuting those people who are violating our laws. Yeah, I mean, it's very easy for people to dismiss what's happening on college campuses because there's all these reports of, you know, craziness there. And, and uh, but it's vitally important. Uh, and China recognizes that. And what you have is, uh, in some instances, um, violating the law. Um, Chinese uh, uh, linked executives, people of some of the biggest Chinese companies in the world are sending hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to colleges and universities around the country. And oftentimes there are strings attached uh, to those donations. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book uh, is a guy named Joe Tsai, who is a co-founder of Alibaba um, and an enormously successful company. I guess it's kind of the, the, the Chinese equivalent of Amazon or eBay right. uh, in the United States. Um, Alibaba, of course, does a lot of work with the Chinese government, the Chinese military. But Tsai um, is, lives in California. He's an apologist for the regime. He's gone on college campuses to say that, oh, it's, you know, people misunderstand what's going on in China. It's not, not so bad. The government's great. Never criticizes the regime. Well, he's donated uh, tens of millions of dollars to Yale University. And he established a, a, the Tsai Center um, for Chinese Studies, Legal Studies at Yale University, named it after his father. Uh, and when you look at what the Psy Center does, and I recount it in detail in the book, um, they're, they're very, very uh, supportive of what Xi has done. Very little criticism. Uh, they, they had predicted for a while that Xi was going to bring, bring greater openness to China. It's really shifted and chilled the debate. And I quote from Yale students who are concerned because it becomes increasingly difficult on the Yale campus to be critical of Beijing because of the influence of Mr. Tsai's money. But it gets worse, Lou, in the sense that Yale and these other universities try to hide the origins of this money. So Tsai sent $30 million to set up this center. Um, you are required by federal law as a college or university to list donations from a foreign source. Um, and the reason is pretty simple. They don't want foreign influence on campuses without disclosure. Well, Yale didn't do that. The claim was that this money came from a foundation that Psy set up in California. Um, we looked at the tax returns of that company, uh, sorry, that foundation. Um, they didn't make those donations. The donations came from one of Joe Psy's overseas uh, accounts. 
Uh, and yet it was not disclosed to the Department of Education. And this goes on uh, all the time on college campuses. They're hiding these donations. The donations come with strings attached and it is chilling the debate. People have a hard time criticizing China on campus uh, because of this flow of the money. And it's, it's going to determine uh, how future generations view the Beijing regime. And, you know, Peter, you just can't help but wonder how much of uh, the leniency that we're seeing from this administration, the Biden administration toward China. He's had four phone calls with President Xi. Yeah. We have no transcript of any one of those calls. We right. have, he has not spoken to the American people about the substance of those calls. He did say that he took up the origin of the Wuhan virus in a press conference, that terrible, disastrous press conference he held. But what he said that not a single one of his uh, staffers at the White House could back it up. Uh, it, we, we just don't know what the relationship is, the honest relationship, the corrupt relationship, perhaps, between yeah. the Bidens and the Chinese Communist Party and the, the actions that are being taken, including, as we just discussed, the leniency that's been given those professors and universities all across the country who refuse to disclose their relationship with the communist Chinese. Yeah, you, you, that's exactly right, Lou. And, and here's the thing that people have to understand uh, when it comes to Joe Biden or, or other people. Um, the Chinese intelligence has a uh, kind of concept uh, when they uh, engage in what they call elite capture, which is forging these relationships with elites in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and the concept loosely translated into English uh, says, big help with a little bad mouth. Now, what does that mean? What it means is, you know, if Joe Biden says something about the Uyghurs, if Joe Biden says, oh, we're gonna have a diplomatic boycott, whatever that means, of the Olympics, they don't really care. They may protest it. They don't really care. That's little bad mouth. What they care about is big help. And what they want and what they are getting from the Biden administration is unfettered access largely to American capital, unfettered access to American technology, even that stuff that's flowing to the military. And as long as they continue to get that, they are very confident that they are going to defeat the United States in, in a competition. And who can blame them? Uh, because when you've got Google and Microsoft financing and supporting artificial intelligence research in laboratories in China linked to the Chinese military, when you've got uh, people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett investing in companies that, that develop technologies to help the um, launching of missiles in China, um, who's not going to be optimistic? Um, so the bottom line is, I think you're exactly right. Anytime that he says something about the Uyghurs or he kind of slaps them on the hand, it's really meaningless in the context of the larger question. And the larger question is, are we going to do something about the fact that our elites and our institutions are giving China access to these resources that are helping them in their competition with us, or are we not? And Joe Biden has clearly signaled and his administration has shown they are all too happy to continue on with that kind of relationship with China. And in the book, you, you talk about the relationship on Capitol Hill, whether we're talking about Pelosi or Schumer or Feinstein, uh, it, it, the 
the fact of the matter is there is a greater common interest that exists between the radical dims of the left and China, we'll leave Russia out of this for right now, and China, than there is with the Republican Party itself, uh, from the centrist Republican Party to the conservative wing of the Republican Party. Corporate America has abandoned traditional Republicanism, conservatism in this country, and has embraced, uh, in fact, the left. Uh, even the Marxist left, whether it's donations to BLM, uh, whether it be the embrace of a communist nation that now has great influence over their uh, corporate futures. Uh, this, every, this should disturb every American, this level of corruption uh, and in the China connection to whether it's Wall Street, corporate America, or uh, the Democratic Party. Well, I agree, Lou. I mean, look, uh, sometimes people look at the questions related to China and they say, well, you know, I feel bad for what's happening in China, but that's happening over there. That doesn't affect my life. This directly affects your life. Uh, it's a question of jobs. It's a, it's a question of our standard of living. It's a question of our competition, our very real military competition, the technological race between the countries. This is about the future of the United States. You know, in this book, that is my focus, what the stakes are for the United States. And, you know, the Chinese leadership tells us what the stakes are. I mean, President Xi uh, said in 2012 that, you know, technology is a national weapon and the race needs to be run and China needs to win that race so they can achieve what he calls, quote unquote, the commanding heights in the struggle against the United States. So, you know, people cannot rest on the fact that, oh, it's too bad what's happening in China. I feel bad for them, but who cares? It doesn't affect me. This is about the future. And China is very confident that the future belongs to them because they are being granted this assistance by powerful elites in the United States. As, as you and I conclude here today, are, are we simply too late to reverse uh, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese destiny, if you will, uh, that they've embraced and that they work so hard to achieve because Americans now are, are caught up in uh, the, the left's concern about uh, diversity and critical race theory uh, and all sorts of socio-psychological uh, shifts that uh, our society doesn't seem to be too willing to engage in. But it is, in point of fact, the interest of much of the country, including corporate America, rather than uh, exceptionalism, uh, excellence, and empowerment of the American people. Well, Lou, Lou, I would say that if this is a baseball game, we're probably at the bottom of the seventh inning. Um, we have time to rally. Uh, there is time to change. I'm only going to lose hope. Uh, when we lose uh, the average American, when the average American decides, who cares? I'm done. Let's just give China what, what they want. I don't care about the future of the country. I don't care about my liberty. That's when I'm going to lose faith, because I believe that overwhelmingly the average American does not want to be governed this way and does not want our elites selling us out in this way. So the question is what we can do. I, I have several things that I talk about in the book. One of the things we have to simply do, and I hope the book is just the beginning of this, um, we have to shame these people. 
we have to shame these people. Ray Dalio, uh, Joe Biden, Elon Musk, Nancy Pelosi, LeBron James, Henry Kissinger. They need to be called out for their conduct, uh, not just shouting and screaming at them, but presenting the facts. So, for example, you know, if you're a shareholder in Microsoft or Google, go to the shareholder meeting and ask them. Read some of Bill Gates' quotes at the shareholder meeting of what he says about communist China. Uh, they don't want these things heard here. They don't want people to know about these deals. Uh, they recognize that they could be deeply embarrassing. So that's the beginning of it. The other thing we need to do is we need to elect people um, who want to take a strong position on China. Uh, there are Republicans and there are some Democrats, I have to say, who, who seem prepared to do that. The problem is, is that a lot of the political leadership in the House and the Senate don't seem to be particularly interested in fighting this battle. And part of that, at Lou, is because so many of them um, are involved with China. But the bottom line is I'm an optimist by nature. It's the bottom of the seventh inning. We need to rally. And I'm confident that we will if we can get the word out. Peter, thanks so much. Uh, I, 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 I'm hopeful as you are. Uh, am I optimistic? I'm, I think I'm like you, clear-eyed, but, uh, yeah. but hopeful. And we have, to, we have to turn this around, and it begins with this election uh, this year, the midterm elections. It's critically important. Uh, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your splendid new book. The book is Red-Handed, How American Elites Get Rich, Helping China Win. The book is a blockbuster bestseller. I urge you to buy it. Uh, get your friends to buy it. Buy them a few copies. And uh, let's all wake up uh, now before it is too late. Peter Schweitzer, thank you so much, sir. As always, great to see you. It's a pleasure, Lou. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Join us again tomorrow for the Great America podcast. Stay in the fight. Truth, justice, and the American way will prevail against all enemies, against all odds.